Chapter Eleven of Stories in Gray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Stories in Gray by Barry Payne. The Doll, Part One. A wax doll, please, said the woman, and the shopman, conjecturing from her appearance the amount she would spend, showed her something at two shillings. Certainly Miss Mordaunt was not wealthy, and did not look wealthy. Her dress was severely plain. She might have looked much prettier than she did, for she had fine eyes and beautiful dark hair. She would not cut her hair, but she packed it into the smallest possible compass, converting the glory of the woman into a neat, hard parcel. Her age was thirty-two, and she earned thirty shillings a week. But the two-shilling doll did not please her. "'Not made to take off, I see,' she said rather disdainfully. "'No, miss,' the shopman admitted. "'But we have a better article here with the removable clothing. Four and two, this one. A nice thing.' Miss Mordaunt took it up tenderly. She made it shut and open its eyes, but it did not satisfy her. "'I think,' she said, "'the, uh, the little girl would prefer a larger one.' Her hesitation in this speech was due to the fact that she was unused to deceit. The doll was not intended for any little girl. There was no little girl in the question. Finally, Miss Mordaunt, who made thirty shillings a week, bought an eight-shilling doll. "'Practically a work of art,' said the shopman, as he folded soft paper about it and packed it in its box. "'A very nice thing indeed, sure to give pleasure.' Really, he seemed almost reluctant to part with it. He tried to turn the conversation to the toy gyroscope and the animated skeleton, an ingenious little thing. But Miss Mordaunt said gravely that she did not require anything further. She departed with the doll in its box. The box had a neat little loop of string for her to hold it by, but she did not use the loop. She nursed the box in the fold of her arm. There was much noise at the corner of Tottenham Court Road. Motor omnibuses banged and rattled, impatient to get on with their load of home-returning clerks. A cabman flicked a barking dog with the end of his whip, and the dog howled. Boys shouted, "'Football edition!' There was so much noise that what Miss Mordaunt said to the box on her arm was quite inaudible. She said, "'Soon be home now, darling.' Yet Miss Mordaunt was not insane. Insane people cannot earn thirty shillings a week in the office of a Holborn cycle manufacturer, as Miss Mordaunt did. She had gone there at eighteen shillings a week, and in four years she had made this considerable advance— even now the manager considered that she was well worth her money. Mr. Fort, who kept the books, said that Miss Mordaunt was a bit snappy, but he admired her. The old woman who cleaned out the office considered that she was a nice-spoken lady. James, who took longer over an errand than any other boy in London, said that Miss Mordaunt was not his style, so far as looks were concerned, but that she was all right so long as you didn't start monkeying. Different people have different ideas about the same person, but there would have been a unanimous opinion that Miss Mordaunt was quite sane, and Harley Street would have endorsed that opinion. Yet Miss Mordaunt, aged thirty-two, had just bought an eight-shilling doll for herself and for nobody else. Why? She was a woman. Fate had made her a worker, the office was making her a machine, and Edith Stafford was trying to make her a fighter. She was all alone, and no man loved her. But she was a woman— and the very same thing made her buy that doll that has made other women perform the greatest acts of courage and self-sacrifice. If you like, you may call it the maternal instinct. Even the purchase of a doll involved some self-sacrifice for this woman with thirty shillings a week. 
She lived in a tiny flat in a back street, and did everything for herself. The flat consisted of two small rooms and a box of a kitchen, and everything in it was intensely neat and orderly. The little flat had marked in advance. At eighteen shillings a week she had been discontented with a single room and much discomfort. But now, why, this was her home, and she had almost all that she wanted, but not quite all. She lifted the doll out of its box, kissed it, patted its hair, smoothed its clothes, and made it sit down on a chair. She said, "'You must wait just a few minutes, Cynthia. Be good.' She put the box with the other card boxes that she had kept, because they might be useful, on the top of her wardrobe. She lit the gas ring in the kitchen and put on the kettle. Then she prepared her supper. There was a tinned tongue in the cupboard, and that tongue had certainly formed part of her intentions. But if you have been buying eight-shilling dolls, you can do very well on cocoa, bread, and apricot jam, the last being used with great restraint. So the tin remained unopened. We all eat far too much anyhow. All this while Cynthia had waited patiently and had been good, as directed. But now she was brought up to the table, and Miss Mordaunt talked to her a little during the banquet. Much nicer than that stuffy shop, isn't it, Cynthia? And what do you think I am going to do after supper? I'm going to make you the very doviest white silk nightgown you ever saw. You'll be quite a princess, and you shall have a little cot by the side of your mother's bed and be ever so happy. Miss Mordaunt did not always speak quite so prettily as this. If she was typing a letter at the office and the machine jibbed, she habitually said one brief bad word. It always made Mr. Fort laugh, and that laugh always made Miss Mordaunt very angry. She was never angry with the old woman who cleaned the office. As she worked at the white silk nightdress, she gave Cynthia information in a low voice. Miss Mordaunt confessed that so far she had been lonely. She had girlfriends, of course, plenty of them, but she had always wanted a little girl of her own. She might have bought a dog, but who was to look after him while his mistress was away at work? Cynthia was better than six dogs. Fortunately, Cynthia had permanently an expression of pleased attention, obliterated only when you laid her on her back, and by a simple mechanical contrivance her eyes closed. Miss Mordaunt was explaining to Cynthia what a remarkably good time she was going to have, when a light ripple of piano music broke in on the conversation, stopped, and then began again. "'Hear that?' said Miss Mordaunt. "'I'll tell you what it means, Cynthia. It means that they've let the flat next door at last, and that the girl moved in today. We shall have to come to some agreement with her about that piano. She seems to play very well, but there must be regular hours for it. I can't hold a meeting of the WWLS in my rooms with that noise going on, and as I've got to earn the bread and butter all day, I can't afford to be kept awake by a piano half the night. I'll tackle the good lady on the subject before I go to work tomorrow. And now, Cynthia, we'll see how you look in your new nightdress. But for the moment, this operation had to be deferred. There came a sharp rap at the outer door, and Cynthia, and all that belonged to her, were hurriedly deposited in the bedroom. Then Miss Mordaunt admitted Miss Edith Stafford. Miss Stafford was tall, thin, jerky, and plain. Her eyes peered bitterly from behind a gold-rimmed pince-nez. She did not kiss Miss Mordaunt. She abhorred all unhygienic things, especially if they were at all natural. Cigarettes were an exception. "'Evening, Grace,' said Miss Stafford. "'Looked in to see why you weren't at the WWLS last night. I'd had an awfully hard day. I didn't feel up to it.' "'Nonsense,' said Miss Stafford, taking a manly pose in the armchair and producing a leather cigarette case." The WWLS was the Working Women's Literary Society. It consisted of seven members and held fortnightly meetings. 
Had it consisted of more than seven, they could hardly have met in Miss Mordaunt's sitting-room when her turn came round. Even as it was, two bedroom chairs had to be impressed for these great occasions. "'Nonsense,' repeated Miss Stafford. "'Women are only tired because they think they are. It's one of the ways in which the ordinary woman makes herself ridiculous and keeps back the movement. Still, you didn't miss much this time. Margaret Jackson lost her temper as usual. About Keats. By the way, she said something to me about you afterwards.' "'Indeed, what was it? That man Fort. Do you mean to marry him?' "'Never, of course not. Why?' "'Margaret Jackson heard through a friend of hers who knows Fort's young brother that Fort said you had been much pleasanter in your manner of late.' "'Then Mr. Fort will change his mind about that tomorrow.' "'Good,' said Edith Stafford, with a jerk of her cigarette hand. "'This is no time for women to marry. My word, if all the pretty girls thought as I do about that, women would be free within a year. I'm glad you're with me at any rate.' Grace Mordaunt blushed slightly. She thought that Mr. Fort was common, uneducated, and unprepossessing. But she also thought that she was very lonely. A further eruption of music spared her any discussion of matrimony. "'What a horrible row!' said Miss Stafford. "'Yes,' said Grace. "'It's the girl next door. I'm going to speak about it tomorrow.' "'I should. One can hardly hear oneself talk. Well, I only looked in for two minutes.' She jerked her cigarette end into the fireplace, reminded Miss Mordaunt that it was her turn to entertain the WWLS at their next meeting, and said a brief good-night. When she had gone, Miss Mordaunt undressed Cynthia and tried on the white silk nightgown. Alterations were required in the neck, and were duly effected. Miss Mordaunt went to sleep that night with the doll in her arms. Part 2 After breakfast next morning, Miss Mordaunt went to remonstrate with the girl next door about the piano. She meant to arrange it all in a friendly chat, to point out that there must be a certain amount of give-and-take in flats. The plan was modified in its execution by the fact that there was no girl next door. The proprietor of the piano was a man, an enraged, fantastic, middle-aged male musician, who had a fine flow of language but behaved much like a distraught and irritable baby. His name was Malcolm Harverson, and he was a musician and composer, as he told her before she had got through the first two sentences of what she had to say. He glared at her with large blue eyes. He ran his good white hands through his excessive crop of fair hair. He gesticulated. "'What am I to do? What on earth do you expect me to do? Do you know I've been turned out of more flats than any man in London? The other tenants always combine against me. At last I thought I was safe. There are no regulations whatever about piano playing in these flats. Not the shadow of a ghost of a regulation.' I was jolly careful to find that out before I took this dog-kennel, and on the second morning after my arrival I've hardly finished my breakfast, beastly eggs that I had to cook for myself because I can't find a servant, when a charming lady comes round to tell me to burn my beckstein and go to the devil. Miss Mordaunt resisted with some difficulty a tendency to smile at this elderly child. I don't think that's quite what I said, is it? You can play as much as you like until six in the evening, and some evenings you can play from six to ten unless I ask you not to, but not after ten, because— Mr. Malcolm Harvison clasped his head with both hands. Oh, wait a minute, please. How do you expect anybody to remember all that? I can't get up at six in the morning, and as for ten at night, why, there are lots of days when I don't really begin to live till ten at night. There ought to be a certain amount of give and take in flats. Miss Mordaunt was slightly disconcerted by this phrase, which she had intended to use herself. And nobody ever hears me complain. There's a woman in the flat over mine who has got a sewing machine in C minor. "'Perfectly beastly. "'Yet I don't go running round as you do, "'shouting to have her crucified.' "'Miss Mordaunt tried to explain "'that she neither ran nor shouted. "'She did not require him to burn his piano, 
she did not want him to be crucified. But as she had to rise early to get the work of her flat done before she went to the office at ten, that reminds me, said Mr. Harverson, the way in which he interrupted ladies was quite shameless. I suppose you couldn't tell me of any old woman who'd come in and do the work of this flat for me. If she arrived somewhere about eight in the morning and looked in again in the evening in the neighborhood of nine, that would— Perhaps I might be able to find somebody, said Miss Mordaunt, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. She explained once more what it was that she wanted. He remained quite unsatisfactory. He would do his best, but he didn't like to make any promises, because, so he said, he knew his limitations, and he might forget. By the way, he hoped she would not forget to find that servant for him, because really things were getting rather serious. Miss Mordaunt had to hurry away in order to be punctual at her business. She had two minutes with Mrs. Fagg, the old woman who cleaned the office. "'Yes,' said Mrs. Fagg. "'I could do this, Mr. Iverson, if he suited me, and the work would fit in nicely. He's all right, miss, I suppose.' "'Yes, I think so. But he's like most men, not fit to take care of himself. Then I'll just call on him this morning and judge for myself, saying as you sent me. Thank you in any case, miss.' Miss Mordaunt enjoyed the day's work which followed more than Mr. Fort did. Mr. Fort was not in the least in love with Miss Mordaunt, but he had determined that she would be just the right wife for him. She was good-looking. She was thoroughly sensible and practical. A little short in the temper, but Mr. Fort recognized that he had reached an age when a man must not be too particular, and that one may have to wait a long time for absolute perfection. Besides, once married, he thought that he could deal with that shortness of temper. Certainly of late she had been distinctly more civil to him. Therefore, Mr. Fort this morning adopted a manner towards Miss Mordaunt, which was oleaginous and slightly intimate. What Miss Mordaunt said could have been telegraphed for sixpence, but it was enough, metaphorically, to take the skin off Mr. Fort. He observed to a friend at luncheon that women were queer cattle. A stream of music greeted Miss Mordaunt that night as she came up the stairs. Mr. Malcolm Harverson was singing to his own accompaniment. He had a very fair baritone voice, and it had been well trained. Above all, he was an artist. Miss Mordaunt was in the mood for music, and was glad that Mr. Harverson had apparently forgotten her injunction. But the moment she closed her door, the music stopped abruptly. So Miss Mordaunt talked to Cynthia instead. Cynthia was sitting, curiously enough, just where Miss Mordaunt had left her in the morning, on the cushions of the one easy chair, and she still wore the expression of pleased attention. Miss Mordaunt said that Cynthia had behaved very nicely, and that she was pleased to see her again. Then she spoke about the music. It would have been more sensible, Cynthia, if he had just finished that song and then left off. Men are always so stupidly literal. Or perhaps he's turned sulky. I suppose you couldn't tell me if he's been playing much during the day. She was correct. Cynthia could not. Miss Mordaunt was opening that tinned tongue with her accustomed neatness when she was called to the door. A man asked if she were Miss Mordaunt, and, assured on this point, delivered a florist's box into her hands. It contained white roses and the card of Mr. Malcolm Harvison. On the card was written, With many thanks for the much more useful present you sent me this morning. I refer to Mrs. Fagg. Since he put it like that, she felt that she might accept them. She loved flowers, but her expenditure upon them was of necessity limited. She placed the white roses on her supper table and invited Cynthia to admire them. Then she did devastating work on that tinned tongue. One might almost have thought that tinned tongue did not cost money, but Miss Mordaunt was happy and hungry. Later in the evening she wrote a brief note of thanks to Mr. Harverson, and she made a fur toque for Cynthia. 
Part three. Days passed away, and every day Mr. Harverson's piano stopped dumb when Miss Mordaunt returned from her work in the evening. It was silly of him to sulk in this way, and she made up her mind that she would tell him so. It was only on special evenings, which would be indicated to him, that she required silence from six till ten. On the other evenings it would be quite enough if the piano stopped at ten or thereabouts. The meeting of the WWLS in her rooms gave her an opportunity. Miss Mordaunt possessed just six teacups, but the members of the WWLS had the Wordsworthian habit of being seven. She was preparing her room for the meeting when she remembered the necessity for one more cup. She had meant to acquire it during the day, and had forgotten it. It struck her now that she might borrow a teacup from Mr. Harverson, and she could at the same time explain to him that she did not hate music so much as he thought. He showed no sign of sulkiness when he admitted her to his flat. He made her come into his sitting-room while he went to find a cup which was worthy of being used by a literary society. The sitting-room was principally occupied by a short grand piano and many books. It smelled pleasantly of Russia leather and Turkish cigarettes. As he came back with the teacup, he asked plaintively if there would soon be an evening when he might play after six. You might have played any of these evenings. It was only on evenings when I especially asked for quiet that you were not to play. He sat down suddenly and nearly broke the teacup. That's me, he said. If I can get anything the wrong way round, I always do. I thought it was only on evenings when I received a special permission that I was allowed to play. Of course, I had to do what you wanted, after all your kindness in getting Mrs. Fagg for me. But I've been feeling very virtuous and conceited about it. Why, it's simply a case of the ten-five over again. What was that? asked Miss Mordaunt, smiling. I had to go north to a rehearsal of some stuff of mine. I looked up a train and fixed on the ten-five. That was all right. But then the thing that I have to use instead of a mind switched the figures round, and I decided that it was the five-ten I had to catch. I got up very early and had no time for any breakfast, and I caught the five-ten. At least, I should have caught it if it had been there. There wasn't any five-ten, of course. The porter who told me so laughed, and my own cabman laughed. I wished I was dead. Miss Mordaunt said she was so sorry, but she seemed rather amused. I can't understand it. I cannot understand how anybody with the gift of music, like you, shouldn't be able to manage little practical things. Sometimes I doubt if music is a gift at all. I'm inclined to think it's a vice. Anyhow, it's just those little practical things which bowl me over. I believe I ought to advertise for an attendant. One of those men in black morning coats and felt hats that take the soft-headed old gentleman out for walks at the health resorts. Well, said Miss Mordaunt, it's most awfully kind of you to have stopped playing on my account, and I'm almost ashamed now that I bothered you about it. Now I've got the literary society, and so I can't ask you to play tonight. Of course not. But I hope you'll play tomorrow night just as much as you like, and— Why, there's somebody at my door. Good night, and thanks so much. It was Miss Edith Stafford with a notebook containing the minutes of the WWLS. I'm early, said Miss Stafford. Thought you might want a hand to get the room ready. Thanks awfully. Everything's all right now. I've just been borrowing a teacup. Ah, said Miss Stafford. The girl next door. I remember. Hope you've persuaded her to stop that tinkle box of hers tonight. Yes, she won't play tonight, said Miss Mordaunt, blushing. It has already been observed that Miss Mordaunt had no natural tendency towards deceit. The meeting was quite successful. Miss Tilbury read a thoughtful paper on some obscure passages in the work of Robert Browning. Miss Jackson animadverted severely upon it. Miss Edith Stafford pointed out that it was only men who wrote obscurely. 
The woman writer was always lucid at any rate. Miss Tomlin said that this reminded her of a story, which she told. It was quite a good story about a lady who bred prize Persian cats, and nobody knew, or cared, how Miss Tomlin came to be reminded of it. Then there was tea, and Miss Mordaunt drank from a blue cup that did not match the rest of the set. Miss Stafford asked her what the girl next door was like, and Miss Mordaunt, blushing, said that she did not know, and changed the subject rapidly. Miss Mordaunt told Cynthia in bed that night that it had been quite a pleasant evening. She also acquitted Mr. Harverson of sulkiness, and observed that he seemed to be rather well off, had good furniture, and took cabs and that sort of thing. To this Cynthia listened patiently, but from the accident of her position, with her eyes closed. On the following evening Miss Mordaunt had just finished supper, and was telling Cynthia about some further additions to her wardrobe, when the sound of Mr. Harverson's piano interrupted her. Miss Mordaunt listened with delight. At the end of the piece she clapped her hands gently by way of applause. Then there came a knock at the door, and with some confusion she admitted Mr. Harverson. He stared round the room with his large blue eyes, and they took in Cynthia, whom Miss Mordaunt had forgotten to remove. But Mr. Harverson, who was not more confused than usual, said nothing whatever about the doll, though Cynthia was wearing the new fur toque and looked charming. He said that he had overheard the sound of applause, and that if Miss Mordaunt really liked the music, she would hear it better on the other side of the wall. Wouldn't she come round with him? Miss Mordaunt accepted, a little surprised at herself for accepting. She took the one easy chair in the room that smelled of Russia leather and cigarettes, and Mr. Harverson demanded what he should play for her. "'If you've got a Beethoven handy, I'm fond of the Moonlight Sonata.' "'Good old Moonlight,' said Mr. Harverson, irreverently. "'All the schoolgirls have to go through it, just like the measles. "'But, however—' "'And without troubling to find the music, "'Mr. Harverson sat down and played the Moonlight Sonata, "'and he did not play irreverently at all. "'I suppose it's old-fashioned,' she said when he had finished. "'But it's terribly lovely.' "'Yes,' said Harverson. "'Beethoven's fine. "'Of course, if he'd had the modern piano, there'd have been a difference. "'Still, yes, very fine. "'I say, Miss Mordaunt, I forgot to have any coffee after dinner tonight, "'and restaurant coffee's rather rotten anyhow. "'I wish you'd help me to make some. "'Won't it keep you awake?' "'No, if I don't have it, I can't sleep. "'I'm all wrongly constituted, and don't fit into the textbooks.' "'So Miss Mordaunt helped him to make coffee, "'and afterwards helped him to drink it. She felt it necessary to say that she had not intended her applause to be overheard. "'No,' cried Malcolm Harverson. "'But these walls are very thin. I can even hear when you're talking to your little friend in the evening. I can't hear what's said, of course, or I'd have warned you, but I catch the murmur of the voice.' "'What little friend?' asked Miss Mordaunt, perturbed. "'The doll, of course. You do talk to her, don't you?' Uh, "'Yes,' said Miss Mordaunt. "'You see—' "'You needn't explain,' said Harverson. "'Bless you, I know. That sort of thing is easy to understand. "'If one didn't understand it, one couldn't make music properly.' "'Harverson and Miss Mordaunt met again the next night, "'and the next, and the next. "'Malcolm Harverson and Grace Mordaunt being what they were, "'the story could have but one ending, a happy ending. "'She was pleased that it was not until after she had accepted him "'that she read in the papers an account of the festival, "'with lavish and unusual praise for a work by Malcolm Harverson.' Miss Edith Stafford said that she had known all along how it would be, and had seen it coming. This prescience seemed to be some slight consolation to her. Part 4 Some years later, 
when the newspapers had quite got into the habit of speaking of Malcolm Harverson as the eminent composer, Mrs. Harverson decided to give her little daughter a doll. She confessed that it was not quite a new doll. In fact, it was one that she had formerly played with herself. Miss Cynthia Harverson, who had not begun to worry about arithmetic, said that she supposed in that case it would be about a hundred years old. "'Getting on that way,' said her mother. "'But it's got the loveliest clothes that I made for it myself, "'and it shuts its eyes when it lies down, "'and it's got the same name as yourself.' "'Let's see,' said Miss Harverson. "'The doll and its somewhat elaborate wardrobe were produced, "'and Miss Harverson was delighted with them. "'But she put one finger in her mouth and sucked it, "'the sure concomitant in her case of a mental process.' Then she observed that her mother must have been no end of a child if she could make dolls' clothes like that. But I was much older than you are when I made those clothes, dear. How old were you? I don't like to think about it. Ever so much older than I am now. They were still busy about the doll when Grace heard her husband calling her. I say, my dear, he said, I've got to send ten shillings to a man in Brussels. How does one do it? Grace crossed the passage to her husband's room. "'Give me the letter and the money. I'll do it for you. "'You haven't changed one little bit,' she said, laughing. "'Then she sat down and added seriously, "'I've given Cynthia the doll, and she's quite in love with it.'" End of chapter 11